everyone, and welcome to episode number six of Conversations in Momentum, brought to you by the teams at Momentum Transport Consultancy and Momentum Transport Canada. I'm Amélie Koss. And I'm Maylis Garden. Today we're really excited to be joined by one of our directors. A warm welcome to Will Darden. Um, Will's director at Momentum and one of the three directors who founded Momentum 10 years ago. Um, he's worked around the world delivering major international sports and entertainment venues and cultural institutions and residential master plans for the likes of Stonehenge, MSG Sphere and the London Stadium. Um, thanks for joining us today, Will. Hi, Maylis. Hi, Emily. Thank you for having me. Great. Um, we should just add at this point that, um, as Maylis mentioned, Will has worked on many major sporting venues and events. And we're no doubt today going to talk about his work on stadiums around the world. As we record this, we're just a few days away from the World Cup quarterfinals. And I'm sure many of you know there is this small matter of France versus England. So I'm very excited about that, as both Maylis and us and me are French. <laughs> So perhaps it's good timing that we're recording this week rather than next week and, and Will can tell us about that. Yeah, I, I feel like I've been a bit stitched up getting two of my French colleagues a few days before the the game. We're definitely <laughs> better off doing it before the game than after the game. I'm not I'm not in any way confident about it, I have to say. <laughs> Nor am I <laughs> it's safer that oh, way. That's good. That's reassuring. That's reassuring. Right, well, let's get started then. Will, um, we ask each of our podcast guests to share a story or an experience from their work in transport. And I was wondering what's been, uh, what's been especially memorable um, for you? Um, yeah, so I've been thinking about this uh, and sort of staying on the theme of stadiums and major events. I think that the big one for me was probably the, the 2011 Champions League final, which was at Wembley, which was um, I'd, I'd worked on a number of stadiums and events before that. But this was the first time I'd got a really operational role and I was there on the day overseeing events on the ground. And it was the first time, it was a you know, really uh, exciting time, you know, leading a whole team of volunteers. And it was, it was, it was, um, it was great to see all of the work that we'd done in the planning and strategizing uh, come to fruition. But it was also a kind of realization of how the, the gap between theory and practice and all the strategy and planning you can do for an event. Um, and then the kind of slightly chaotic world of operations and how those two things to come together and I learned a huge amount through that process um, and went on to apply that through the Olympics and Champions League final in 2013 and really started to bring together those two different threads of that kind of very operational experience that understanding of you know how you make things happen on the ground in in very real ways um how you use communications and infrastructure to make things um happen in the real world um and how that relates to all of the work that we do in our kind of planning and our modeling and all of those sorts of things and that's become a real theme of my career really is bringing together those two kind of what can be quite disparate threads actually um and just the realization of standing out there uh on that champions league final with you know tens of thousands of people and buses and cars everywhere and realizing that it it, it does you know that all the work beforehand does represent this but actually it, it's far more chaotic than you could ever have imagined and actually um yeah influencing those outcomes is it's quite a different thing so yeah that that was the one for me that really stands out 
That's really interesting. And I think it sort of relates to that. There's nothing like a reality check, I think, in the transport planner profession that we always need to understand the reality of what we're planning. And that, that bike and force you're describing is, I think, so important in the in the world that we have in, in cities. So. Yeah, and not, not enough of it, I would say, in our industry. Not enough people that really understand how things work um, on the ground, how buildings work, um, how uh, th- how things are genuinely operated. Um, there's there's often a gap across all sorts of different um, uh, markets between design and operations. And um, you know, I think that's that's one of our real outlooks on the industry is 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 bridging that gap and being the people that can you know understand operations and then design for it and and no more so than in stadiums i think Mm. that gives me a perfect bridge into our next question so thank you for that (laughs) um i wanted to ask you a similar question to one we asked in our last episode uh so we've just celebrated our 10th birthday at momentum as you know um, what do you think has been the biggest change in transport over the last 10 years? I mean, it's been a fascinating time to have been uh, at the head of a, a transport consultancy because I think transport consultancy in general has become far more central to the debate, central to our industry and the built environment, a far more uh, respected and prominent uh uh, discipline than it may have been at the you know t- in the ten years prior to that in the beginning of my career, I think for a few reasons I think um, I think in cities like London uh, you know the, the 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 lack of space the lack the the increase in congestion you know th- these sorts of things have meant that actually um, getting more out of the asset that we've got has become more and more important. Um, I think sustainability has become, you know, the, the orthodoxy for the the whole industry, and actually transport's right at the heart of that. I mean, you've seen, you've seen other disciplines, in particular architects, but also lots of different types of engineers and planners, all would know an awful lot more about transport planning now than they would have done 10 years ago. They're, they're far more interested in it and and what it can, the benefits it can provide. And then I think aligned to that that. The biggest shift really, certainly in the more urban locations, has been modal shift and uh, becoming orthodoxy. You know, the the idea that you, you, we cannot just keep designing the same way we always have done and that actually we need to, we need to start baking in uh, better outcomes in terms of transport, you know, and how that's reflected in cities where, you know, reallocation of space to non-car um, uses, um, you know, would have been radical a decade ago um but now is you know very much part of the the agenda for a lot of projects great um and leading from that on the kind of other side of the question um what is the biggest change that you think should have happened and hasn't happened in the last 10 years um it's a difficult one but i i I think um I guess the clue was kind of there in saying that in in some urban locations those things have become orthodoxy and in certain types of projects they have but actually I think um in other locations less so I think it's it's still patchy um and I think um policy certainly in the UK has been a bit slow to keep up in some locations and and actually um a lot of the policy that drives a lot of work um in some bits of the country is it is fairly um fairly old-fashioned in terms of the way it views the world so i think i think sort of top-down policy and general uh 
um, rhetoric within the industry has moved a long way, but not everything has kept up and not everywhere has kept up. So I still think there's a, there's a long way to go. Um, and, um, and that goes for working in different countries as well. You see a real um, mixed bag of um, application of these policies and, and, and approach um, and sometimes some fairly um, sort of hypocritical approaches to things where, you know, there's, a, there's an amount that's done, but, you know, overall the project's... Um, uh, yeah, don't really stack up in those terms. So yeah, I, I wouldn't say there's one been one single failing, and there's been a lot of progress. I think it's just um, there's still still some way to go. And maybe some of that gap between what we are ready to do in our profession and some of the either the political will or the communities willing to get. I find in 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 our work in Montreal there was a lot of tension between well we want to talk about sustainability but what it means in real life for people in their you know day to day movement and choosing to own a car and that sort of thing is quite a different story. Uh, yeah, certainly. I mean, we can talk. You can talk about the kind of on the individual level, but actually, I think that comes from top down. I think the achieving modal shift requires difficult decisions. It requires and it requires the politics to line up behind that. And it requires, you know, if you're if you're to ask people to make changes to their lives, you have to understand what the implications of those changes are, and you need to be able to facilitate them. So I'm 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 a little wary of the narrative around, you know people just need to be more prepared to give up their car i mean there's an element of that but actually i think what it requires is you know a a, a centralized approach of um achieving modal shift through you know carrot and stick you know long-term strategic um thinking um which is sometimes a bit lacking uh, to be honest a lot you know some some projects are a bit piecemeal um and you know don't don't really leave anybody anywhere to go you know they're told that they're bad for driving their car but they're not really given any alternative um so i think it's it's um sometimes more of a failing of the, the overarching strategy and if you look at what's been achieved in london in the last decade you know things like the congestion charge you know the ulez things like that you know really do shift the agenda on the whole thing um and but without them yeah it can be very difficult to make any progress Thank you, Will. That was a, a really great, uh, a really great answer. Um, I'd like to circle back to our initial topic about um, major events, and um, and also there's a two-part question coming your way. So please bear with me. Um, I guess I'd I'd like to ask you, with your experience working in in stadium major events, can you still watch the World Cup as a football fan without thinking too much about um, the stadium and how it's designed and how it's working and its operations? And second part of the question is... um, because this is all part of our momentum city, um, what what do you think makes the perfect stadium for you? Right. I mean, the the answer is no. I can't. I mean, I've worked. I think I've been working on stadium projects for about sixteen, seventeen years. I think I've probably worked on at least sixty of them. Probably a few more than that. So I think the time where I can look at a stadium and not see crowd flows and and gate lines has long since passed um that doesn't mean i can't enjoy it i mean it's particularly cute when i go to stadiums i'm also a football fan and i also go you know go and watch football matches and you do find yourself um 
focused on uh, elements of how they're managing the building. Sometimes you'll be like, oh, you know, that's not very well managed or, you know, um, things that, you know, particularly older venues where you look at some of the design of them and you think, oh, okay, that's probably not particularly safe. Um, equally, it's quite interesting to see um, you know, better run venues and how they're doing things well, um, you know, innovative approaches, people using technology or, you know, just being um, very effective in the way that they, they, they manage the buildings. The, the um, venues I'm always most impressed at are those that create the greatest connection with the people that use the building. So they do the best at communicating with people how to, how to travel, how to use the building, you know, really excellent um, wayfinding and communications and those sorts of things that really make you feel looked after as part of being part of the building. So I'm always on the lookout for things that are good. Um, watching the World Cup on the TV, you, I'm very familiar with all of the stadiums there. We've done lots of work over there, but we, you don't get to see so much of it on the TV. They're very focused on the pitch. So luckily there's no concourses or gate lines for me to stare at. Um, but I do always have a moment where they zoom in and the picture in the beginning, I always try and work out you know, how that relates to all the models we built and things like that. But um, in terms of what makes a good stadium, it's an interesting one because we've worked on a huge amount of stadiums and and arenas and things like that and ranging from um new build um you know blank sheet of paper brownfield site to you know those very uh sort of unpicking uh, quite intracted issues or adding capacity to existing historic venues sometimes very very uh historic buildings what i would say makes a great venue as a as a fan as somebody who's gone to a lot of venues a lot of um, music venues and a lot of football stadiums is um a sense of business sense of place and uh busyness and yeah the, all, all of the enjoyment that you get from that and the reason i say that is that isn't that that doesn't always happen in a new build stadium. Um, it can do and they're really well done, but actually um, something can be lost if they don't achieve some of those things. So, um, yeah, so that, that for me is the kind of the key to a really good stadium, somewhere that you really enjoy being is that, you know, so it's focused on that sense of community you get from being amongst all those people and, you know, and nothing, I guess, that detracts from your experience of watching the, the sporting event as well so you're not queuing up for hours to get in etc and yeah that distinction between new build and um and existing so in terms of what makes a perfect stadium to work on we do a lot of new build and it, they can be great fun because you have you have to unpick some really big challenges so you, you you know you have a very clear vision from the client that you have to deliver you have to secure planning consent which can be really challenging if you're in a new location that didn't previously have a venue you know that's a significant piece of infrastructure there's a lot of people traveling to and from so there can be a huge amount of work needed to make to make that work um but they can, uh, yeah, they can be, as I say, they can be, because their design is often driven by guidance on safety and security requirements, things like that. They can, they can end up being a bit over-designed in places um, and, and lose their focus on the event they experience a bit. Um, I think on balance, I probably enjoy the, um, well, I don't know, but I, I enjoy the the existing venues a lot. I enjoy picking some of those existing challenges and, and, you know, working with venues that have been there for 100 years um, and, you know, existing patterns of fan behavior and, you know, just getting to the bottom, understanding how that all works and then trying to 
maintain it and keep that alive and keep some sense of um culture and uh history and that kind of busyness event day and non-event day busyness as well so i'd say some of my favorite projects that i've worked on um would be things like the new camp which i worked at for a long time or a long time ago i worked on the maracana in 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 rio and they were both you know both very famous venues huge venues very kind of um ingrained in the culture of that place and how sports watched in that place and the culture of those teams and trying to find a way of of um improving them and increasing the size of them and modernizing them but without without losing that that thread with um what makes them great places to go and watch football and you know um, and you know big parts of the cities that they're in Ah, that's very inspiring. Thank you for that, Will. Um, so you've also you mentioned a couple of the venues you've worked on uh, in the in the years of your career. Uh, you've also worked, I think, very closely with Whitehill Arena Bristol, which uh, is aiming to be the most sustainable arena in Europe and carbon neutral from day one when it opens in 2024. So we wanted to touch on a bit on sustainability, which was a previous topic that we talked about on that podcast. Um, and and we're wondering which elements are designed into a project like this to make it a carbon neutral building. And I would also like to extend that question into what you can do in terms of sustainable transport uh, for an arena like this. I think you were mentioning, obviously, event days, they bring so many people on the roads and you don't necessarily want to plan a network that can take that amount of people all the time. So what's the, you know, the flexibility that you can bring in in terms of transport to help design for sustainability in a, an arena like this? Yeah, well, I mean, with a, with a focus on um, on the transport elements of, of what we're trying to achieve in uh, in Bristol, it's a so it's in North Bristol. It's in an area called Filton, um, which is right by the M4 and M5, and as a result, it's quite a car-dominated landscape and um, and very congested as well. The motorways, in particular, but also the the A38, and it's it's a uh, it's an area that struggles with with um, with congestion traffic congestion so the in order to build the venue there and in order to make it work both from a sustainability angle but also just from a fan experience angle for you know for people to be able to get there and get away from there uh in in good time and in an enjoyable way actually we've had to take quite a a radical approach to the the transport strategy and it's quite it's quite different um to anything else that would be set in a similar context and actually more has more in common with um some of the sort of city center locations that we would have worked on in the past in that it's um got a significant focus on um non-car modes i was going to say public transport that's not entirely true and actually ytl are taking it upon themselves to deliver an awful amount awful lot of this um non-car transport um because there isn't a huge at this time there isn't a huge amount of public transport available in the local area so it's a real focus on a very significant um park and ride operation and a very significant uh, shuttle bus operation as well to bring people from from bristol city center so you know delivering well over half the mode share through you know bespoke um transport overlays to take people away from public um, away from the private car and into their um 
onto um, non-car modes. Um, also, an awful lot done around um, cycle parking, electric vehicle charging, those sorts of things, um, and a lot of investment in the rail as well. So, there's a new rail station, and um, uh, and you know, long-term targets to increase the amount of rail use. But it's um, it's quite unique, as I say, in that that um, the uh, developer, the event owner, are, are really looking to uh, have control of the uh, event day transport operation um, and uh, create a very kind of curated approach in terms of how people buy their um, travel to the stadium, how people are informed about it, how people are directed on what to use, best ways to travel, and then how that travel is actually um, uh, focused as well. So we're looking at things like shuttle buses that... um, uh, connects up areas where the most tickets have been sold, so a sort of demand responsive element that people will buy their travel through the website as part of buying their ticket. So it's a it's a very hands on approach to to delivering uh, a sustainable uh, transport solution um, that, that's that's fairly unusual um, at the scale that we're, um, we're that we're setting out to achieve there. Um, to yeah to really embed the that those modes within the transport strategy thanks will i think this uh, ownership element and the willingness to to really sort of own and live by those commitments is is uh, is really impressive and and um i really look forward to seeing the results of that actually um it should be really really good to see um my last question um, is is linked um, to to this topic of sustainability, actually. And now that we're in a pandemic recovery phases and in most part of the world, would you say that the climate crisis is the biggest concern facing our clients and their projects at the moment? I mean, it's an interesting question. I, as I said earlier, I think with the right clients, and I think as a as a business, we 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 tend to work with what I consider to be the better clients, those that have, you know, that share our outlook on the world. I think um, the climate crisis and I think that uh, the need to do something about it is really become orthodoxy now. I think it is, it's kind of one of the central tenets of planning for most projects. The the challenge, I think, and the, the, the biggest sort of challenge facing our industry is how do we align that with other competing pressures? You know, for example, the need to build homes or, uh, you know, to to ensure financial viability that we're able to continue delivering these things, to continue to build, you know, thriving cities to provide the right sort of workspace for, for you know, for our businesses and our economy to thrive. So I think, y- yes, I think it is, you know, clearly globally the greatest challenge that we face. But I think as an industry, our um, what we're faced with, what the, the challenge we're faced with is how do we how do we achieve that whilst also achieving what needs what, what needs to be achieved um, within each individual project uh, without, yeah, without sort of um, compromising one or other of those. Um, so it's the it's the actual implementation, I think, that's the challenge in itself. Because I, I, as I say, I think amongst most projects that we would be involved with and amongst most uh, client groups or uh, stakeholders, actually, it's, it is really one of the central tenants of what they're doing um but it's it's all about the how um uh, which can can really bring those challenges home 
Well, great. Will, thank you so much for joining us today. That was really interesting. And I think we've hit our record timing on the on the podcast. <laughs> uh, it's been fantastic to hear about your experience, your projects, and to think about, you know, the, the evolution of the profession with you. Uh, so thank you for coming today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And we hope that you enjoyed our conversation today. We'll be keeping the conversations going on LinkedIn, where you can find us at Momentum Transport Consultancy and also Momentum Transport Canada um, or follow our podcast to make sure that you don't miss any future episodes. And from all of us, uh, conversations in Momentum, uh, we're saying bye for now and we'll see you next time.